Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be once again in this awesome story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Uh, to begin with, I'd like to uh, talk about uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks, and he distinguishes between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Here's what he says. Listen to this. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral, whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Were you capable of deep love? We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. Now, we in the church, obviously, are very much interested in the eulogy virtues, so-called, but especially the eulogy virtues that are rooted in and emanate from a relationship with God. We're not simply interested in being good people who do good things. God isn't really interested in that. What he's interested in, yes, he's interested in good people who do good things, but those good things and those good people have to be rooted in a relationship with God. That's what he is interested in. So we very much here at the church want to cultivate the eulogy virtues. Now, we're going to catch up with a family today, a very broken and dysfunctional family whose members somehow begin to cultivate these eulogy virtues. How do they do it? Well, we'll be looking at Genesis 43 to try to figure that out. But before we jump into Genesis 43, it's hard just to jump into a chapter in the book of the Bible, especially this great story of Joseph, without a little bit of the backstory. So we've got to recapitulate a little bit, summarize a little bit what's been going on up to this point, especially in, in Genesis 42. So there's this family, Jacob and his sons, Joseph is one of the sons, and Joseph has been separated, estranged from his brothers and his family, and he's been down in Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery. They don't think he exists anymore, probably. They don't ever expect to see him again. There's a famine all over the world, and therefore, uh, Jacob and his sons are in Canaan, and they need food. So Jacob dispatches his sons to go to Egypt because he's heard that there is food in Egypt. Joseph amazingly has risen to a place of prominence in Egypt, and he is the one who's in charge of dispatching the food. And so they come, the brothers come, they meet Joseph again, but they don't know it's Joseph. Joseph knows it's them, and he uh, allows them to have the food, and they go back to Canaan with the food. However, Joseph says, you've got to leave Simeon, one of your brothers here, in captivity, throws Simeon in prison. Now, they got to come back to get Simeon. they got to come back to get more grain. But in order to do that, uh, Joseph says, well, you got to bring back your other brother, Benjamin, who's now the favorite of Jacob back in Canaan. And Jacob doesn't really want to part with Benjamin. That's why he didn't send Benjamin in the first place. And so they go back. And also what Joseph does, strangely, is he puts their money back in their sacks. They discover the money in their sacks, and they go, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? Because we're going to be thought to be thieves if we go back. But we have to go back, but we're going to be taken as thieves, and oh, this is just a horrible, horrible mess. So now they go back to, and they're in Canaan, and there's still a famine, and they still need to go back to 
Egypt once again. But Jacob says there's no way he's going to part with Benjamin. And then you've got uh, Joseph back in Egypt, and he says there's no way he's going to give any more grain unless uh, you bring back Benjamin. So it is a stalemate at the end of chapter 42. And we ask, can anyone break this stalemate? Okay, it's a brief summary. Let's dive into it. Uh, we have a lot of text today. I'm going to read all of it in different parts, but uh, pay attention because this is an exquisite story with all sorts of connections. Genesis chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, so there's still a famine. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, that's one of his sons, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, that is Jacob, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? The man, of course, is Joseph, but they don't know that. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both, uh, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back, and, and uh, bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice." So Jacob seems to have forgotten what the deal is. He says, you got to go back to Egypt to get us some more food. And they remind him, hey, we can't go back. We can't even get an audience with this guy unless we bring Benjamin back, and you're not letting Benjamin go. So he's forgotten this. And finally, he drills down a little bit more, and then he pitches a fit. Why did you tell him all this information? Well, they had to tell him all this information. Joseph was asking them very pointed questions to get this information out of them. It wasn't as if they had any power in this situation, so they had to tell Joseph all this information. So finally, Judah says, okay, I'm going to be a pledge. Now, this is, a, this is just a key word in this narrative. And we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 38 for the Judah story. Okay, we've got to do a little bit of work remembering the Judah story now. Because uh, Judah was an absolute moral failure in multiple ways. And he finally reached rock bottom when he paid for sex. And uh, he, he uses this word pledge. He uses this word pledge. He, he pledges this in order, to, he makes a pledge in order to secure sexual favors. So that's what he did back then. And of course he had sex with, he didn't know it at the time, but it was Tamar. And it was Tamar then who awakened Judah to his responsibilities in this family. So the word pledge was used in a very debased way back then. Now, Judah uses that word, but he's offering himself as a pledge. This is, this is self-sacrifice. This is a whole different Judah. 
And we ask ourselves, what has happened to this man? He was a total moral failure. He hit bottom. And now he is rising up to this place of prominence within his, in this family and making sacrifices for the sake of the family, even offering himself as a pledge, which means he puts his family fortune on the line and he takes the blame forever. And we ask ourselves, well, how did this change come about in this man? Well, it began with public confession. He really had to confess publicly to have any way forward because Tamar made it so. He confessed not only to God, but he confessed publicly. So Judah's story offers hope to those of us who have made a wreck of our lives. And a lot of people have done that. A lot of people have made wrecks of their lives. And many people have made wrecks of their lives sexually. So how do you begin the journey up if you've made a wreck of your life? You might start by confessing. Confessing to God, first of all. But then confessing to others as well. Probably not publicly, that's not the right forum in this case, but maybe there's one person you can confess to because a lot of stuff is just kept inside and you don't think about it, you, don't, you think other people are gonna reject you, but if there's one person you can find that you confess to, you can confess to, you can begin the journey up. Okay, now how is Jacob then gonna to respond to Judah's proposal. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of the sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your, uh, your, old, your other brother and Benjamin, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Whoa, this is a big change. Jacob had his heels dug in, and now he's willing to take the risk of letting go of Benjamin. How did this come about? It is Judah's faith that has inspired his father's faith. Judah's faith is rubbed off on him so that now he is able finally to take the risk. He's, he's terrified of loss. He has suffered so much loss in his life. He doesn't want to lose anymore. He's holding on desperately to Benjamin, the, the person that he values most now. And finally, he is willing to let go of Benjamin. So this offers uh, hope for those of us who are paralyzed by fear of loss. And this happens to many people. You lose enough things, you lose enough people, you lose enough jobs or whatever, and you are just paralyzed with fear that you're going to lose something else. And we ask ourselves, well, how does the change come about here for Jacob? He's an old man. It's hard for old people to change sometimes, and he's able to let go of Benjamin. How did it happen? He was inspired by somebody else, by somebody else. Faith inspires faith. So if you find yourself paralyzed by fear of loss, what do you do? One of the things you might consider is hang around some people of faith. See what you can learn from them. They can inspire you. They can rub off on you. Their faith can inspire your faith. Well, now the question becomes, how is Joseph going to respond? The brothers journey back to Egypt, and now we're going to pick up the story in verse 15. This is a long section. We're going to go all the way to verse 30, but again, it's an intricate story, so pay attention. 
So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, Joseph saw Benjamin with them, and he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man, uh, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Curious. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Okay. So, they, uh, they, the brothers now are worried. There is this feast that is being prepared for them, but they think it's a trap. They're worried that Joseph is going to assault them and enslave them. And by the way, they still don't know it's Joseph. By the way, that's what they did to him. They assaulted him and they sold him into, sla and, uh, they sold him into slavery. And now it looks like maybe Joseph is going to do the same thing to them. But they have this curious encounter with Joseph's steward. And, and, and somehow Joseph must have communicated to the steward and and somehow the steward, this Egyptian steward, speaks of God and how God is taking care of all of them, says, peace to you. And this is very strange, but in it, we see God's hand in it. And within God's hand, we see Joseph's hand. We see God moving through Joseph. The brothers bow before him. Now it's all 11 brothers. And Joseph had a dream way back in Genesis 37 about his brothers bowing to him, all 11 of them, finally all 11 of them of them are there bowing to Joseph. And then Joseph sees Benjamin, his long lost brother, his only full brother. 
and he is beside himself. He loses it again. He lost it once before. He loses it now. He's going to lose it again. He cannot control himself. He's trying to, it's not easy wearing these, you know, trying to play these two parts at one particular party. He's uh, playing the part of the unfamiliar host, and he's trying to play the part of the long-lost brother, too. But he has to hide that part of him. But it's coming out because he feels so much for his brother, Benjamin. God, be gracious to you, my son. Behind those words are my brother, but he can't take off the mask yet. And he weeps, and he has to find a place to weep that he, that, so he can't reveal himself to them at this particular moment, so he finds this place to weep. So now, now Joseph is, looks like he's blessing his brothers. He's the victim here, but now uh, the, the brothers victimized him, but it looks like he's blessing them with this incredible feast. And we ask ourselves, well, what has happened to this man? What has happened in his life? Wouldn't you think that if he had been victimized the way he had been victimized, that he'd be looking for an opportunity to get back at these guys? But it doesn't look to be the case. In fact, he's blessing them. Well, what's happened to him? Well, God's taken care of him, and he recognizes that. He recognizes that God has blessed him in the land of Egypt. First, God has blessed him through this man by the name of Potiphar, he served in Potiphar's house. He rose to a position in prominent, of prominence in Potiphar's house. And then he ended up uh, rising to a position in, in all of Egypt because of Pharaoh. So God has blessed him through Potiphar, and God has blessed him through Pharaoh. This story, the story of Joseph, gives hope to those of us who are victims of wrongdoing. And we are all, of course, are victims of wrongdoing. Some of us are victims of horrific wrongdoing. But Joseph doesn't seem to be stuck in bitterness. He's forgiven his brothers, it looks like, and he's even blessing his brothers. How did that come about? It has come about because he has recognized that God has blessed him, and God has blessed him through people. So if you are a victim of wrongdoing, you cannot see yourself as a victim. There is no freedom in being a victim. You have to get over that somehow. And one of the ways you get over it is by looking carefully at your life since this thing happened to see if anything good has happened in your life at all. Has God been good to you in any way after this thing happened? Maybe he's been good to you as a result of what this thing was. Now that's an amazing thing to think about. And that's liberating. It liberates Joseph. It can liberate us as well. Look for how God has blessed you through other people. Now, can Joseph pull it together? We're at verse 31. Then he, that is Joseph, washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. 
So Joseph treats these brothers like royalty, and they look at one another in amazement. Interesting phrase, they looked at one another. It's the same phrase that begins Genesis chapter 42. The brothers were just looking at one another. They were starving, but they weren't doing anything about it. And, and Jacob said to them, why do you look at one another? Go to Egypt. And now they're at the end of 43, they are looking at one another, but now they are looking at one another in amazement. Now, Joseph shows favoritism toward his brother, Benjamin. The question is, how are the brothers going to react to this favoritism? Remember, when, when, their, when their father showed favoritism toward Joseph, they were jealous and they were angry and they threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery. Now Joseph is showing favoritism to one particular brother. How are they going to respond? It looks like they've come a long way. They celebrate. They eat. They drink. They're merry. No one says, hey, he got more than I got. They're completely content. Some pretty amazing things look like, look like they've happened for the brothers as well. And, and, and so, you, so you look at you know, 42 and 43 as, as a section. It, it, it continues on, but it begins with a famine, and now it ends with a feast. So, hope. Hope for those of us who are jealous. And most of us deal with jealousy at one point in our lives or another. Right? You look out, you say, yeah, he got more than I got. She got more, she's got, you know, more than I, she's got more going than I got. And people are treating this person better than they're treating me. And so we often are dealing with jealousy and envy. How do you deal with that? Well, it looks like the brothers are able to shift the focus from what they do not have to what they do have. And Joseph has treated them incredibly well. Joseph's graciousness has, seems to have changed them so that they are not so much focused on what they do not have, but they are amazed by what they do have, what they have been given. They expected to be assaulted. They expected to be enslaved. Instead, they're treated to this royal feast. So this is hope for us. Appreciate what you have. Each of us has been given gifts that are uniquely designed for us from the graciousness of God. Don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have. That'll make you appreciative of God and what He gives you. So in Genesis 43, we see that God is at work. The characters, the different characters invoke the name of God throughout. God is at work. What is He doing? One of the things that He is doing is he is cultivating in these different individuals what David Brooks calls eulogy virtues. God is working on their character. And so we ask ourselves, how does it happen? How do these people change in, in the book of Genesis? Well, there's more than one answer to that question, but there is a common denominator. In each of these incidences, people are involved. Other people are involved. These people change, not least because of their involvement with other people. In Judah's life, God uses Tamar. 
In Jacob's life, God uses Judah. In Joseph's life, God uses Potiphar and Pharaoh. In the brothers' lives, God uses Joseph. So God uses other people to change us. And then he uses other people to create openings so that we can begin to see things differently, so that we can think about things differently and act differently. God uses other people in our lives to create openings for us to think and to act differently. Therefore, first of all, involve yourself with people. Very simple. Involve yourself with people. But once you involve yourself with people, then look for openings. Look for openings that God creates through those people for you to think and act differently. God then, in this respect, is very much like a football coach. A football coach who designs blocking schemes for the offensive line so that the running back has openings to run through. So sometimes those openings are really wide and they're hard to miss. Some football broadcasters will say when they see this huge opening that the line has created, well, I could have run through that hole. That opening was big enough to drive a truck through. Other times they'll say, I don't know how the running back found his way through that narrow gap. There was no daylight there at all, but he he had the perceptive faculties to see there's the opening, I'm going for that opening. So when we involve ourselves with people, God is going to create those openings, like the football coach who uses the offensive line to create openings for us. Let me offer three suggestions then what we should do with this story in our lives. First of all, involve yourself with some small group of people. If you have to involve yourself with people, you need to do that, involve yourself with a small group of people. I'm involved in leading three such groups in our church that meet once a week, and we have found it necessary to continue meeting one way or another. So all three of these groups have continued to meet once a week, oftentimes over Zoom, sometimes in person, socially distant. We've tried to adjust to the rules and everything and what everybody's comfortable with, but we recognize that this is important. This is important to meet together in order, not least, for us to be changed. We can't really be changed simply in isolation because we have to run up against people to be inspired by them, to be challenged by them. So involve yourself in a small group of some sort. If you don't know how to do that, talk to one of the pastors, one of the elders, go online to the PBC website. There are all sorts of different ways to get involved. Talk to Jenny Villanueva. She's our connections director. Talk to Rolana Smith. She's involved in people getting together with connect groups. There's different ways to do this, and we encourage you to do that. Listen to this fellow by the name of M. Craig Craig Barnes, who uh, has been a pastor and a professor. He's now a seminary uh, president. He says this, After years and years of directing flashy church programs and speaking at more conferences than I can remember, I am convinced that sustained transformation of human lives occurs best through these small circles of Bible study that meet in living rooms, dorms, conference rooms, and coffee shops, he might add these days over Zoom, all over the world. Here's just an experienced pastor and preacher, professor, conference speaker. And what does he say? How does change really happen? He says the best way that it happens, in his view, 
is through these small circles of Bible study, these small groups. So first of all, involve yourself in a small group. Second of all, find at least one person to meet one-on-one with at least occasionally. Involve yourself with people. Meet with one person, at least one person, one-on-one, at least occasionally. There are many stories in my life I could tell you about this. In fact, I see Ray Cookingham back there, and I met with Ray for a couple years, uh, pretty much uh, once a month or so when I was discouraged in my life. Ray's one of our elder emeriti, and it was very encouraging to me uh, just to meet with, uh, with Ray. I did the same thing with Craig Duncan, another one of our elder emeriti. Uh, but I'd like to go back also to a story from years ago in my life when I was training for ministry, and uh, I was living in Idaho at the time. I was interning at a church, and I chose to do the junior high ministry at the church, not least because of this fellow by the name of Wayne Yamamoto. And he was the junior high pastor at this church, and I realized that Wayne was going to, if I did junior high ministry, Wayne was going to spend a lot of time with me. And indeed, for two years solid, he met with me every week. And I was uh, in my early 30s at this time, and Wayne was the first one to really ask me a lot of probing questions. And he, and he got at some of these hidden motivations that I did not even know was there, were there. And um, these hidden motivations that were preventing me from thinking and acting differently. And Wayne was a great friend and a great mentor, not only in ministry, but also in my personal life as well. Join a small group, meet with someone one-on-one. Third, be aware. Be aware of the people around you. These may be people that you have not even met. You never know when God is going to send someone your way to have something very specific for you so that you can think and act differently, so that you can cultivate these eulogy virtues. Last week, I I pulled my car up to the side of our street, and I was walking back to my house, and there was this woman on the other side of the street who was walking her dog, and he, she smiled at me, and she waved, and she said, Jesus loves you. Who, who, who does that anymore? Jesus loves you. And I, it, just, it just caught me by surprise. I didn't know what to do. I was halfway across the street. I waved at her. I said, uh, I said uh, you too. <laughs> I, I, I think I meant to say Jesus loves you too. Like I was trying to connect with her, but I... I just didn't do do it very well. I was surprised by that. I had a dream last night. I think it was inspired by this woman. I take my car to this car shop, and I break my phone, and the the person at the car shop says, oh, I I, I can fix that. And then he he starts to talk to me about Jesus. (laughs) This guy who's at the car shop, he's trying to fix my phone, now he's talking about Jesus. What's that about? I think it was inspired by this woman. Maybe I should talk about Jesus a little bit more than I do. Maybe God is sending people my way, even a dream my way, so that I can think and act differently. I heard this story from a fellow by the name of Sam Sam Erickson. There's two guys in the Chicago O'Hare airport. One's a businessman dressed in a suit. The other is a young guy not dressed in a suit. The the businessman has just gone to the dispenser and he's bought a bag of cookies. He sits down and then this young fella comes up and sits down next to him and the young fella decides to help himself to the cookies. He, he, he starts eating a cookie and the businessman is just, is just livid because this guy is eating his cookies. 
And so he doesn't say anything, though. So the businessman takes up his cookie, starts eating it, starts eating some more cookies, and the young guy continues to eat his cookies. What's going on here? Finally, there's one cookie left. And the, and the businessman is very upset by this whole situation, and the young guy takes the last cookie, and he breaks it in two. And he smiles at the guy, leaves half there, and walks away with the other half. Now the businessman is really angry until he picks up his coat and sees his bag of cookies under the coat. You see, they each bought a bag of the same cookies. And the businessman had a completely wrong conception of what was going on. Now, that was a tremendous opportunity for him to think and act differently because of his involvement with this young man that he had never met before. What graciousness, what love, what generosity. Because the young guy knows that the old guy is eating his cookies and is very generous with the whole thing. Not exactly what the old guy was thinking, right? You never know when the opportunity is going to be there for you to think and act differently. So, involve yourselves with people and then watch for the openings that God creates. Okay, let's look at this chapter as a whole in conclusion. The brothers were worried that Joseph was going to assault them and enslave them. Instead, he treated them to this banquet. Jesus invites us to a banquet. Perhaps we might fear that God would assault us and enslave us and do something worse because of the way we have treated him, because of the way we have treated other people. And indeed, we deserve such. We deserve worse. But instead, what does Jesus do? He invites us to a banquet, to a royal banquet. He says, many will come from east and west and dine and recline at table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the angel says to John in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when that happens, we will look at one another in amazement. And we will eat and drink and be merry in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all those who have loved Jesus. He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love.